Let me ask you to take your Bibles. We'll begin in Malachi chapter 3 this evening. Malachi chapter 3. Last book of the Old Testament. For Israel, it was the last it was the last message to them before Christ came. There was a period of silence for 400 years after Malachi was written. The next prophecy that they heard was really from uh, from John the Baptist and the uh, gospel writers to follow. Over the years, many well-intentioned preachers have used this passage, Malachi 3, 6-12, and they've used it uh, some pretty extraordinary means in order to rally some people to give to their church. And while I think giving is important to a church, a church can't exist without uh, giving certainly, um, the most important thing is not whether a person gives or how much a person gives. The most important thing really is the heart. What God determines is most important. And, and he, for, for Him, He suggests, or he, he shows us from the Scripture that giving it should be done from a heart that loves God and so what we're going to do today is I want to begin in Malachi chapter 3. I want to review what we talked about last week and then move on to the New Testament and our responsibility to give from the New Testament. We'll be looking at a lot of passages, so get your thumbs ready. But let's begin reading um, Malachi chapter 3, beginning with verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. And uh, we'll stop there. Along with the sermon this evening, I have a handout here. Does anyone need a copy of the handout? Okay, Jonathan, can you give me a hand? Mrs. Wirtz. Last week I sought to answer three questions. First of all, what is this passage teaching us? Because in order for us to understand what God is saying about giving, we can't simply go, well, this is what I understand and force it on the text. We need to draw out what God is saying from the text. So that was our first goal last week is, is to answer the question, what is the passage teaching us? And we saw that, verse 6, we're talking about a God who is changeless. He is changeless in the sense that He stays true to His promises. And He is faithful, but He has a, a, a requirement for His people. He demands that they be faithful to Him. And so He begins in verse by saying, you need to return to me. And of course, they ask the, the standard question that's been asked throughout. They, they respond to this assertion made by God. How can we return? In other words, where have we gone? We're not the ones who left. We're the ones that were sent out into captivity. Wasn't that you, God, that left us? How are we supposed to return to you? And God says, I'll tell you how. Will a man ever rob God? Because you are robbing me. And their follow-up question to that is, wait a second, how are we robbing you? And notice at the end of verse 8, in tithes and offerings. It wasn't that the people were, were going into the eternal storehouse of God or even into the temple storehouse and stealing things from the temple. In other words, God's treasury. They weren't stealing things that way. But he was saying, you're a robber. The whole nation of you. And the idea there is that, that they were withholding something that was rightfully God's. It would be like your, your 
neighbor borrowing your lawnmower and never returning it. You would have right to say that they have stolen that from you because they never returned it. And if you went back to them and said, I have a claim on that lawnmower. That's my lawnmower. And they said, well, I, how am I robbing you? I haven't taken anything from you. I, I haven't gone into your garage and taken anything. But you borrowed my lawnmower and never gave it back. Well, we need to understand about this passage and about all the resources that we have in general is that they're all all owned by God, aren't they? Everything we have is owned by God. And so in that sense, whenever we withhold something from God that is rightfully His, then we are then we are liable, like Israel was, uh, for robbery. We are charged with robbery, and and rightfully so. So, uh, God was was stating that He had a claim on their money and resources. God owns it all. And whatever He demands, we need to give back to Him. Otherwise, it's robbery. that's That's where they had gone. God says, return to me because you've been robbing me. You're withholding something that is rightfully mine. And specifically, he's talking about tithes and offerings, but ultimately he's talking about their lives. That they need to turn to God. That they need to repent of their sin. Now, God was expecting conformity in this area of giving. He was expecting them to to do right with regard to what they gave to the temple. But the change that needed to take place was not going to take place by just adding a few more dollars. To the, to the offering. Rather, the change needed to be made on inside the heart. It, it was away from selfishness, this is all mine, and I have a right to do with it as I please, and toward God, it's all yours, God, and I will do with it whatever you want me to do with it. So God requires that His people give themselves completely to Him because half-hearted devotion to God leads to half-hearted giving to God. But full devotion leads to repentance. And that's what he is ultimately calling for here. Return to me. Repent to me for what you have done. And start being faithful. So that is an overview of that first question that I tried to answer last week. What is the point of the passage? God is showing His faithfulness despite their faithlessness. And He's requiring that they return to Him. The second question that I sought to answer was, was Israel obligated to tithe? Okay, God was saying, you're robbing me by withholding this money. Were they obligated to tithe? Did they absolutely have to? And what we learned was that tithe means a tenth. And that the Old Testament believer was to give one-tenth, ten percent of their resources once per year. They were to do this. They were to give this to the priest. So they had taken inventory of all the things that God had prospered them. And they would give 10% of that to the temple. Now, back in, in Moses' day, that would be primarily with, it would come in the form of animals or grain offerings, those sorts of things. But then over time, what happens, and this is what's happened in Malachi, they started to come to more of a monetary system like we have. Now, they still have the animals and things, but, but they would start to be able to bring actual money into the storehouse. And so God was saying, this is something that I require of you. And what we found was that not only did they have to pay that 10% once per year, but they actually had to do it at least two times per year. That they would do it once to the priest and then once for the Passover sacred meal. They would give that directly to the temple. And so really it was 20% of, of, of their earnings. And I would say from Leviticus chapter 27, verses 30 and 32, where Moses has this law or gives this law to the people that, yes, they were obligated to tithe. It was a responsibility to to obey God in this area. So the question that we have for ourselves now is, like I began with, lots of well-intentioned people have used this passage to try to prick the conscience of people to get them to give more. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, or, or of the text, I should say, is are we responsible to tithe? Do we have an obligation to give 10% or 20% of our earnings to the church or to God's work, in other words? And uh, so I tried to develop that last week. That was what I took most of the time doing. And what I what we discovered was that that first point there on your sheet, A, uh, capital A there, qualification for an Old Testament command to be obeyed. 
What, what determines whether or not we should obey an Old Testament command? And I said that there were two things that, that uh, make an Old Testament command valid or, or something applicable to us, something that we have to obey. The first one there is it has to be restated as a command in the New Testament, particularly in, uh, in the age of the church, which begins at Acts chapter 3. So it has to be restated in the New Testament. What we found was that, um, well, we'll get to that in a second. Let me sh- let me just mention the second one here. The second reason is, or the second way that it that it could be an Old Testament would be applicable to us is if it's a timeless principle rooted in the character of God. Okay, so let me try to give you an example of both of these. First of all, the example of murder. One of the Ten Commandments is do not murder. I think it's the sixth one. Now, should we obey that command? Hopefully, your quick answer is yes. We should obey that command. And that's because Jesus repeats it in Matthew chapter 5, but also James talks about uh, it in, in James chapter 2 as well. So in that case, we don't even have to go to the second principle there, the whether it's a timeless principle rooted in the character of God. If it's restated in the New Testament... For New Testament believers, then we have to obey it. So, as a result, we don't murder people. All right. Now, here, let me give you another example. Deuteronomy 22.5. It is uh, a command against cross-dressing. A man shall not wear a woman's clothing, and a woman shall not wear a man's clothing. It comes from Deuteronomy 22.5. It was given to the, to the people of Israel by Moses. So, we have to ask ourselves, is this something that, that we have to obey? And, um, and what, we, what we'll find is that, or what we won't find is that it's, it's, you aren't, you're not going to find a command about cross-dressing in the New Testament or against cross-dressing in the New Testament. You're not going to find one. But the second pr- principle is valid with regard to that one because it is a timeless principle rooted in the character of God. In fact, in that passage, Deuteronomy 22, it says that... that this thing, this doing this sort of activity is actually an abomination to the Lord. So it's rooted in something that He ultimately hates, like pride and, and other things. So there's just to give you an idea of, of um, those two principles at work. Now, what we discovered from our study of the Scriptures is that tithing is not restated in the New, Test- in the New Testament as a command. You're going to find it in the Gospels, but, but only that the Pharisees were tithing. You're going to find it a couple times in Hebrews, but only as a mention of what had taken place in the past. So what you're going to find is that tithing is not commanded for New Testament believers. So if we only had that principle, then we would say, well, then it's, it's, not, it's not a command for us to obey. But we have that second one we have to evaluate. Is tithing a, a uh, timeless principle that is, it transcends all of time. If, if you put that principle at any part in human history, it, it could fit because it's rooted in the character of God. You see? And what, what, um, what you'll find is that of the 32 times that tithing, the specific word tithe is mentioned in the Old Testament and the ones in the New Testament as well, none of them make reference to it being a timeless principle rooted in the character of God. And um, so, you're blank there. So, neither qualification was met with regard to whether or not it's something that we should obey. And as a result, New Testament believers are not obligated to tithe. Now, that sounds pretty shocking. But, but I think if, if we do a, a genuine and careful understanding and, and uh, study of the Scriptures, we're going to find that to be true. Now, what I want to do this evening is I want to take it a step further. Okay, if we're not obligated to give a certain percentage of our earnings, then does God require us to give it all? And so I want to ask a few more questions. Next. Okay, number four. Are New Testament believers obligated to give at all? Okay, now there's a difference. You need to understand that there's a difference between tithing and giving. Tithing... Old Testament command of giving 10 to 20%. Giving is simply giving of our resources to God's work. 
So when I say, do we have an obligation to give, I'm not saying the same thing as, do we have an obligation to tithe? Do you understand the difference? Turn to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. This is where the, the page flipping begins. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And when we read a verse like this, at first glance, it seems as if Paul is teaching us that we have no obligation to give. And this is how the argument goes. For an Old Testament saint, they had an obligation to, we'll just call it general, that they had the obligation to give. For New Testament saints, they don't have an obligation to give. And this this, uh, passage right here is what people turn to when they take that sort of stance. Look at chapter 9, verse 7. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Okay, so Paul is saying specifically, do not give out of a grudge or as a result of a grudge or out of compulsion. In other words, don't give if you're compelled to give. If, if you're you're having your arm twisted, don't, don't do that. And so what... And that seems to be in line with, look at chapter 8, verse 8. This is talking about the same gift that he's asking them to to bring for the Jerusalem church. Look at chapter 8, verse 8. I am not speaking this, that is, to bring a gift. I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love. So Paul says in 8.8, I'm not speaking this as a command, 9.7, I'm not, I don't want you to be compelled to give. But what we need to understand here is the context. What's going on in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9? And uh, we, we studied this not too long ago, and what we found was this, this was a special gift that was given to the Jerusalem church. It was something that actually the Corinthians had promised. They, they had this great desire to give at the very beginning. And so Paul, instead of saying, this is a command that you give this, and I would call this a love offering. Okay, this was kind of a free will. You've heard of these types of free will love offering. You're not compelled. Don't feel compelled to give. But let me appeal to some things, Paul says. And so he begins in chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. He says, how about the example of these other churches that have already decided to give? Chapter 8, verse 9. What about Christ who gave himself for you? Would you not be willing to give yourself to others? Chapter 8, verses 10 through 15. What about the previous promise that you've already made? People have already been excited about the gift that you were planning to give, and now you're saying you're not going to give it? Chapter 8, verses 16 through 24, he talks about the messengers that, that he's already sent. Paul's saying, I already sent to you uh, Titus and another brother, and, and, and you need to send them away with a an offering from your church to give to this church. Chapter 9, verses 1-5. through 5, Paul says, what about this previous boasting I've already had on, on your behalf? I've already told other people how you were charged to give, how you were excited to give to this church and to this work, and now, where's all the excitement? See, now not only are you going to make yourselves look silly, but you're going to make me look silly because I've boasted on your behalf. And then he gives them an appeal based on the promise of spiritual blessing, chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. So Paul is making it clear that giving, uh, I think, must be done. His main point is that it should be done with the right motivation. And that's why we often turn to this passage to show that, listen, this is what God's looking for. He's looking for a person who's willing to give generously, uh, a person who's willing to give out of the cheerfulness of their heart, a person who's willing to give because of what Christ has already done for them, chapter 8, verse 9. So, so Paul is ultimately working, uh, looking towards their motivation. And so what people have done here is they've taken 8.8 8, saying, this is not a command for you to give, and 9.7, don't be compelled to give, and said, okay, then God doesn't, God doesn't give us any obligation as New Testament believers to give at all. So we could completely be in line with God spiritually and never give to God's work. But let me take you to take you to several passages that show that we do have an obligation to give. All right, Galatians chapter 6 is the first one. 
Galatians chapter 6. This is Paul writing to the church at Galatia. And he writes in in chapter 6, verse 6, The one who is taught the Word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Okay, he doesn't say it'd be kind of nice if if the one who teaches the word would also be able to share in some of the gifts. No, it says the one who is taught who, who is taught the word, the student is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Okay, so that to me sounds like an obligation. Turn to First Timothy chapter five. First Timothy chapter five, and this one I think is more explicit. This helps uh, prove the point I think much better than the previous one. First Timothy five seventeen and eighteen, the elders, the same word for pastors, overseers, uh, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Okay, so we could stop there and say, well, that's just talking about honor. But notice verse 18. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. And then this is a quotation from Jesus in Luke. He says, the labor, the laborer is worthy of his wages. So at the very least, as a church, we have a responsibility to give to the one who is laboring in preaching and teaching. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is the next one in verse 14. Paul writes to the church at Corinth, So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. All right. Again, we have a responsibility to provide for those who Get, who get their living from the gospel, or who who are the ones who present the gospel? Turn to Third John, chapter one. Third John, chapter one, verse eight. Let's begin uh, in verse seven, because what we need to understand here is that that what. John is actually referring to is missionaries, people who go out for the sake of the name. Notice verse 7, For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that they may be fellow workers with the truth. And this is where we got the, uh, the, the, the theme for our missions conference this past November. Fellow workers with the truth. We, notice verse 8 again, Therefore, we ought to support such men. Does that not sound like an obligation? As a church, you see, we have an obligation to give not only to the people who are who, who make their living by teaching the gospel, but also we need to give to our missionaries. We have an obligation. We ought to send them out for the sake of the name. So I would argue that we do have a responsibility. We do have an obligation to give to God's work. And that's why I put this quotation here from, actually it's probably more of a paraphrase, but this is from uh, uh, Pastor Doran. He writes, uh, or he says, the New Testament obligates us to support God's work, which includes the worship of Him in this place and the advancing of the gospel in this place and the worship and advance of the gospel in Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. So there he's incorporating, I think, what what all of these verses have said, and that is we need to support the work and the ministry of God both here and around the globe. We have an obligation to do that. So to use the language of Malachi 3 in our day, God would be saying, if you fail to give to God's work and ministry, then you are robbing me. That money... That, that you have in your possession, you are a steward of that money, but I own it, God is saying. And for you to fail to give 
Two, God's work in ministry is for you to rob me. Because you, it, it would be no different from, the, from you coming to my storehouse and taking money from me. Same sort of crime is taking place when we withhold money from God. So, to answer the question, do we have an obligation to give from the New Testament, I think the Scriptures are clear that yes, we do have an obligation to give to God's work. And so now we need to move to the next question. That is, how, it, how are we to give? Turn to Mark chapter 12. How are we to give? Number one, I think we ought to give generously. We ought to give generously. Chapter 12, verse 41. And he, Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she owned, all she had to live on. Now, from a human perspective, who put in more money? A combination of all those people. Look, look at what they did. They were putting in money into the tre- treasury. Many rich people, verse 41, were putting in large sums. And what Jesus is saying is take all those rich people, all the money that they've put in, put that in a pile, and then take the money that this poor widow put in, which amounts to, Mark records for us, in our day, a cent. You take those and put them together from a human perspective, there's no comparison. But Jesus is saying that's not what it's about. Okay, Giving is not about the amount. Giving is about the heart behind it. That is, you need to be given generously. And for her, a cent was generous. Because it was out of, he calls it, her poverty. And they were doing it out of their surplus. We'll talk about what that means. Basically, the leftovers that they had. So we should give generously. I think that's a principle that's clear in the New Testament. Secondly, we should give discreetly. Turn back to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We should give discreetly. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your your giving will be in secret and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. What is the principle that Jesus is trying to teach here? I think it is that that we shouldn't give uh, in order to be seen by men. Again, it goes back to our motivation. What is our desire? If we're here in order to give, in order for other people to to see us and to honor us in some way, Jesus says you have your reward. Enjoy it. That's all you're going to get. But if instead you do your righteous deeds in a way that is is not in order to be seen by men. Now, that doesn't mean when the offering plate comes by, we put it under our coat and just kind of dump a little in here and pass it back on. That way, no one sees if we put in a dollar or twenty dollars. You see? That's not the point. The point is, we shouldn't be doing it, doing it in order to be seen by men. Ching, ching, ching. Right? Dropping the money or, or holding the plate a little bit longer so that they can see these big wads of $1 bills are putting in. You understand the point. Jesus is saying it's not in order for you to be seen by men. You should do it discreetly. And when I say discreetly, I simply mean without making a show. It should be done with the proper motivation. And that really is the next point. We should give with a proper motivation. We won't turn there, but you know the story in Acts chapter 5 where Ananias and Sapphira 
sell a portion of land. Now, Barnabas had just sold some land at the end of chapter 4. And he gave that, that, that land or, or that, the money that came from it to the church. And as a result, he probably received some honor. They probably esteemed him as, as, a, as a servant of God. Wow, that was a great deed that you did. And so Ananias and Sapphira perhaps are sitting back thinking, we could do that too. But we don't really want to bring in the whole sum that our land's going to sell. So if, let's say it's sold for $10,000, we're only going to give $5,000. We'll say that's the whole price. Now, the, again here, the amount was not the, the problem. It wasn't the, the fact that they gave less than his land was, was worth. That wasn't the problem, was it? The problem was is they lied about it in order to be like these Pharisees in order to be seen by men. And so we have a negative example of what motivation looks like. Our motivation should be for the sake of God to be honored, not for other people to see us and, and give us praise. All right, then fourthly, the obligation to give. Um, we, I, I think we have an obligation to give regularly. Now, the obligation that comes on a New Testament believer does not carry with it a percentage. Okay, we already showed that from the Old Testament that that's not, that's not effective for New Testament believers. But rather, it should be a regular, habitual pattern of giving. Do you realize that, that one of the best ways that you can show your faithfulness to God and your belief in the Gospel, belief that the Gospel works, is to regularly give to His work? It's easy for us after an appeal for forgiving, or after a missions conference, or, or when we see a large need and someone comes in and, and lays the guilt trip, it's easy for us to, to put out a little bit more money. But here, here's what I think the Scriptures would want us to... Uh, I think God would want us to understand. That is that we should be regularly giving. In fact, the pattern in Acts was on the first day of the week that they would give of themselves and their gifts. And so it should be a regular, habitual, planned, consistent, cheerful type of giving. And, and that really, I think, demonstrates for us what kind of heart is behind our giving. I think that's a, a good pattern to follow. Now, when we give in a God-honoring way, how should we expect God to respond? We touched on this a little bit last week, but I want to, to go back here. Uh, let's turn back to Malachi chapter 3. Okay, you're, you're in uh, Matthew, I think. Malachi chapter 3. And notice what God tells the people of Israel. He says, you have been robbing me, so you need to, to, to stop robbing me. Give me what I own. Notice verse 10 again. Malachi chapter 3. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this says the Lord of hosts, if, it will not, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. One of the principles that, that we should understand when it comes to interpretation is that we should claim the promises of Scripture but not someone else's promises. Okay? And this one, I would say, is someone else's promises. So when God says, test me now in this, give me more and see what happens. See how I won't overflow your barns. Well, we're not Israel. God never made a promise for us for our barns to be overflowed. So, so we should never expect that when I put this amount into the offering, then I can go the next day and check out my, my E-Trade account and I should see it skyrocket or at least go up a couple ticks. Or notice in my bank that I got an extra dividend that came back. God is, is, has not promised for us to uh, to receive these types of blessings because we are not Israel. But I think the point here that he's making, I think the principle still stands true, and that is he's saying, test me now in this. This is the only place where God allows testing in the Scripture. Everywhere else it's prohibited. Satan tempted Jesus. That was wrong. The people of Israel tempted God when they asked for water at Meribah. That was wrong. God says here, test me now in this. See what happens when you do this. And I think the point here is this. You do what I've told you to do. And if you do that, see if, see if I am not faithful to you. I am a faithful God. 
I will give you even when when you don't deserve, but see what happens when you actually do obey me. I will be faithful to you. I think the point here that we can draw from from this and 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 um and carry over, I think, for us as New Testament believers, is that God has a promise for us. Turn to Philippians chapter four. Philippians chapter four. God is asking the people, or is he, He's demanding of the people that they give. They have an obligation to give. So I think He would have that same obligation on us, just a little bit. It's not, it's not tied to a, a certain percentage, but it is tied to generous and right types of giving. And, and here is what God is saying about Himself in chapter 4, verse 19. Actually, Paul is speaking on behalf of God. And he says, And my God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. We have a similar promise from God, don't we? He obligates Himself to follow through on this promise. And so in a sense, He's basically saying, I am going to be faithful, just like I was with Israel. For them, it was overflowing barns. For you, it is that your needs will be taken care of. And so that means for us, that we simply need to trust Him. That we do what is humanly irrational. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to give out of what we have. Whether we have a little or a lot. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to do that, does it? Not from a worldly perspective. We should give because we love God. We should give because we have an obligation to give. We should give because we recognize that we're simply stewards. We don't own any of it. We should give because we believe that God will provide for all of our needs. So we give out of what we have and then we trust Him that He'll supply our needs. Does God have the power to do that? Do we have a God that is faithful to His promises? Is that promise for us? And I would say, yes, it is. But then we need to ask, is is it really worth it? Is it worth it for us to to give of some of our resources in a way that might cramp our lifestyle in order to believe in God, is it worth it? In other words, what is more valuable to you? Your relationship or the amount of money that you have or your relationship with God? What is of greatest value? Do you really want to please God or do you only want to as long as it doesn't cut into your savings? If I, I can give out of my income, but if it has to cut into my savings, I don't know. Or as long as it doesn't change my lifestyle type habits, if, if I have to give up X, then I don't know if I can give to God. I mean, if I, as long as I can maintain this standard of living, then I'm willing to give God the leftovers. And this is what Jesus is saying. These, all these rich people are coming to the temple treasury and they're giving out of their surplus. They're not giving out of their heart. It doesn't even hurt them to give. All those large amounts were nothing to them. God doesn't deserve our leftovers, does He? David wanted to get a threshing floor in order to build an altar on it. Perhaps you remember the story in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 24. And Aruna, Arauna, I believe his name is, says, you know, David... You are the king, and you ask for a threshing floor. I'll give it to you. In fact, I'll give you some animals to go along with it. What does David reply? How can I take this threshing floor and give it to God when it's cost me nothing? I can't give it to God even though this was going to be given to him as a gift. He was saying that that I am a principled man. I am not going to give leftovers to God or something that was just Given to me, I'm going to re-gift it to God. I'm afraid that too often in our Christian lives, we have been willing to give too little because after all, I mean, we can spare a few more dollars a week. Yeah, we can give that to you, God. But it really doesn't cost us anything to give. The creature comforts of our lives have not changed in any way because we only give to God when we have excess. Doesn't God deserve more than our spare change? The change that kind of falls loose and is sitting in the couches? Oh yeah, we'll 
collect all that and give that to God? Doesn't God deserve more than that? Certainly He doesn't deserve less. God deserves of the best of what we have. He, he d- demands our best. And that means that we should give to Him trusting that He will, Philippians 4.19, supply for all of our needs. See, this is pro- part of our problem is we look and we say, if I give this much money to God, then, then there's a chance that my needs will not be met. But if we believe that way, then what we're ultimately saying is, God, we don't trust You because God has said Your needs will be met then the only other question is, what do we consider as needs, right? God deserves nothing less than our best. Five points of application. Number one, a failure to give is presumptuous. Sometimes it can be a presumptuous, I think. We reason to ourselves, you know what? God doesn't need my money. And you know, that is true. Acts 17.24 that says that that God never needed anything. He's not served by human hands as if He needed anything. But God is the one who gives to all men life and breath and everything that they receive. So, so you're right. God doesn't need anything. But that is a horrible reason not to give. That would be like saying, you know, my boss doesn't really need that money. I've seen how much money he makes in a year. The guy's a multimillionaire. So... He, does, he won't mind if I take a couple hundred bucks from petty cash. I mean, that's what we're basically saying. You know what? God doesn't need it. So, so I need it more than God, so I don't have to give it. That's a terribly principled line of, of reasoning. We've missed the point. It's not a matter of need when it comes to our giving. It's a matter of right and wrong, whether we trust God or not. So in that sense, it is presumptuous. God has a right to our money. Number two, a failure to give is likely hiding a larger problem. A failure to give is likely hiding a larger problem. That problem is greed. We want a little bit more. And Colossians, Paul says in Colossians 3.5 that greed is idolatry. It is no different than you carving a God putting it up on a pedestal and and bowing your knees down to it. That's the same thing as greed, he's saying. It's idolatry. Jesus says in Luke 12.15, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. We are not defined by how much money we have or don't have. I know in our society we like to put people in different social classes, but we are not defined by our money. This is what Jesus is saying. No matter if you have all the money in the world, you are never defined by your possessions. And idolatry is very uh, its very deceitful. It's self-deceiving. We can start down this road of greed, and the next thing we know, it has become our God. And we can't give it up. Let me have you turn to... Matthew chapter 6 for our final three. Here I think we can draw these points of application from Matthew chapter 6. Jesus teaches here on not worrying. He teaches on wealth and uh, their responsibility to seek first the kingdom of God. Chapter 6 verse 33. But we're going to read verses 19 through 21. Matthew 6, beginning with verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Number three, a failure to give is a lack of trust in God. God is saying that when you give to His work and ministry, that as a result, you are storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So, a failure to give is a failure to trust God. We don't really believe that that's true. And so, one of the best ways that you can take something physical and turn it into spiritual, okay, in the long term, if you think eternally, is to give to God's work. 
to give to God's work and ministry here and around the world. You know, it is humanly, I said this before, but I want to reiterate this, it is humanly irrational to give to a church. Have you ever done your taxes and gotten a red flag on your giving? I mean, the the tax program is usually saying something like, what are you doing? You are crazy. For someone to make that little of money and to give that much to a charitable organization doesn't match. So either you're making this up or you're out of your mind. Okay, I don't think the software says all that stuff. But, but that's basically the way our society thinks, right? Because if you look on, the, on a broad scale of how much people actually give to, to charitable organizations, okay, and I'm saying the church is, is part of that, then it doesn't, it doesn't match up because for them it's, it's probably less than 1% or somewhere around there. And so for, for you to give more than that, it's, it's a red flag. But if you had an opportunity to respond to that computer software or that person sitting at H&R Block, you could say to them, you know what, from God's perspective, it doesn't make sense for me to give any less. It doesn't make sense for me to give any less because God actually owns it all. He deserves it all. And, and this is the smallest token of my appreciation that I can give. And it may cramp my lifestyle. It may mean that I have to put some things away. And that's why I say it is humanly irrational to give to God and His work. But from an eternal perspective, it shows that we trust God, that we believe that His gospel works and that His word is true. Number four, a failure to give is a reflection of the heart. Look at verse 21 again. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It is a measure of our value system. What is most important to us? What, what If we had to say this is the most important thing, would God be at the top of the list? Would God's work be up there? Or would they kind of be, you know, making sure that I have my retirement, my, my kids' college fund, and my, my, my cushy lifestyle, and then I'll slip God in there, number three, four, five. Wherever your treasure is, okay, whatever's at the top of that list, whatever you value most, whatever your treasure is, that's where your heart is. It's right next to it. Number five, a failure to give is short-sighted. Okay, what Jesus is calling for is eternal rewards. He's saying, if you think about the here and now, then it doesn't make sense to give. But you need to think farther than that. You need to think long term. You need to think eternally. Because really, in the scope of eternity, this life is nothing. It's like a breath. Here for a second, it's gone. But you can actually store up treasures for yourself in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt if, if you are not short-sighted. My pastor used to say that we can take it with us. That is our money. We can take it with us. We can't take it with us, excuse me, but we can send it on ahead. And that comes from this passage right here. We can't take our money with us. It's all going to be left here. But we can send our rewards ahead, can't we? When we are willing to give to God and His work. Now perhaps you're looking at your responsibility to give, your obligation, you're thinking about your financial picture, and you're thinking, I just can't afford to give. I just, I look at, at my finances and I just don't have any room left to give to God. And I'm saying to you that what lies behind that type of thinking is your lack of faith in God that His gospel works and that His word is true and that it must be obeyed. God is telling us that we need to check our own heart. What is our motivation in this giving? Are we doing it just so that we can see God give something back to us? Now, maybe He'll prosper us in some way. That's not what He wants. He's not looking for you to... He's not concerned about your bottom line long term. He's concerned about your heart. Are you giving with the right motives? Are you giving generously? Are you giving according to what you have and even beyond in some cases? That's what faith is. It's believing in something that, that's not readily evidenced, not in your near sight. It's believing in something that is from the life to come, and that is in Jesus Christ and His rewards that He has promised for all those who trust Him. Now, I want to address one final thing, and that is, 
who should we give to? Because sometimes we can say, well, maybe this obligation to give can apply to all these, and I mentioned before, charitable organizations. But, but I've been careful to say that, that what the type of giving that God is looking for is to God and His work. It is to God's work, the thing that's going to advance His work around this area and around the world. Okay, so I just want to make that uh, clarification there. All right. Hopefully that uh, will help clear up some things. I know this has been this passage, Malachi 3, has been treated in many different ways, but I think uh, my goal was to represent God's point of view, and I hope you uh, saw my line of reasoning there and the, the, the Scripture that supported that. But I would encourage you to examine your own heart. Look at your own situation and see where God can... Uh, can work to improve in your own life. But certainly, if God owns it all, there's always more that we can give, right? We can never give more than He asks for. And ultimately, what He's looking for is our lives. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, we are humbled at the study of Your Word and we view ourselves in relationship to it and see that we fall woefully short, even as believers we do. And Lord, I pray that You would just help us each to examine ourselves and return to You where we need to return, repent of our selfishness, and to give in a way that would be honoring to You. That we would give with right hearts, not simply an amount in order to be seen by people or in order to be appeasing to You in some way, but but really in a way that would be honoring to You out of a generous and cheerful heart, one that recognizes our own responsibility and requirement to be a part of Your work in this area and around the world. And we pray that the expression of our trust in You would be seen in our giving and our devotion to You in full-hearted devotion. And as a result, that You would be pleased. That is our goal in life, that we would glorify You in all areas. So we pray that You would uh, shore up all the problems that we have with regard to our hearts and what we've held back from You. May You accept from us our lives as a sacrifice. And may You be honored in how we respond to Your Word this evening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.